All right, we're here now about the red letter study. We are still in the red letter study. We're still in the Sermon on the Mount. And we're taking uh, the Sermon on the Mount a little bit quicker than we did the last time. And uh, I was told last week that maybe we took it a little too quick. There was a lot of information in last uh, week's message. So hopefully it didn't blow you away too much. Burn a few circuits. See if we can simplify things just a little bit here. Um, in this section, right after we, Jesus starts with the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and then he transitions into the two great metaphors of salt and light. And we talked about those and, and what they meant uh, and, and, the, and the two different positions that they take in terms of both preserving life physically and then illuminating life spiritually. That will be the salt and the light. And just as the Beatitudes were a picture of the finished product of someone who was living in kingdom, salt and light are the effects such a person will have on the people in the community around him or her. So if we are living the attributes that are enumerated in the seven Beatitudes, then we will be acting as salt and light, as that preservation, that fertilization, that vitalization of physical life, and then also the illumination, the clarity, the harmony of our spiritual lives. Beautiful the way that this is set up. So right after salt and light, he's going to transition now into the law. And this is the transition into the first major section after the introduction that we just had, into the first major section of the Sermon on the Mount. So the balance of chapter 5 is going to be dealing with a redefinition, a reframing of the law. And I, I just, you know, we've talked about this here so many times, but I know that it's not getting down to the depths of where it needs to go in us because it took me... Oh, my gosh. I suppose I could say I'm still working it out, right? But to really understand the transition from the law that Jesus is talking about, which is a transition from the way that we think, the way that we process, the way that the physical world actually works, which is all performance-based. If we're going to get anything in this life, it's because we've got to perform for it. We've got to work for it. We've got to earn it. Or we've got to cut it out of somebody else's hide. One way or another, we're going to have to acquire, grab, make ours the things that we need. And then when it comes to our spiritual lives, we think we're doing the same thing. And the big tragedy of the church has been that it has adopted the practices of imperialism right out of the Roman Empire. And so the values that it has been imposing on us, even as it talks about Jesus' grace, God's grace, love, acceptance, and all of that, Underneath all of that is still pay to play. Underneath all of that is still about performance. And so the law is still there. The law still is implied as governing our relationship with God. And this is what Jesus is trying to help us to move through and move around. He's redefining the law in his time versus the pharisaical system which was the predominant thought process and the predominant system at the time in the first century. It was about 300 years in the making before Jesus comes on the scene. But by the time Jesus gets there, it is a fine art. They have tuned this thing to the nth degree. And Jesus is coming up against that. Not the law itself. The law is necessary. But the way that it was being practiced and the attitude that it engendered in the people, this is what Jesus is trying to come against. And because 
the law. And because this sense of legalism was so prominent, it has become and had to be central to Jesus' teaching. But interestingly enough, interestingly enough, it was also central to Paul's teaching. And I think you could probably take the one issue of the law and understand Paul's letters, all of them, because it appears in all his letters, this central issue of how we're going to deal with the law now that we have Jesus here in our lives, now that we have Jesus' teaching and example in our lives, how do we deal with the law? And this is what we all really need to reflect on. This is what I'm hoping as we keep hitting this in here from time to time, that it'll keep chipping away at even the unconscious legalism that we still have left inside of us. Well, for Jesus, the law is intimately tied to kingdom. It's intimately tied to kingdom, but it's not legally tied to kingdom. Well, there is a nice nuance, right? Let's read um, Matthew 5:17 to 19, and, and let's dig in here and see if we can start to understand what is it that what is the distinction that Jesus is trying to make? And he says right at the bat, off the bat. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. All right. Now, at first blush of what I just read, didn't it just undo everything I said for the last five minutes? Yeah, see? Because what does this sound like to us? This sounds like hyper-legal, doesn't it? I mean, what's Jesus talking about? The law must be fulfilled. Not one smallest part of the law is going to be left undone until heaven and earth pass away. All of these ideas sound super legal to us. But the question becomes, what does Jesus mean by fulfilled? How is the law fulfilled? Does that mean that it's merely kept, that the rules are merely obeyed? Or is there something deeper here? And that's going to be the key to understanding what Jesus is talking about here. And it's going to save it from the legalism that at first blush it appears to be. Now, what does Paul have to say? Literally along the same lines. Take a look at Romans 10.4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Okay, so now here for Paul, the law is ended. For Jesus, the law has to be fulfilled. For Paul, the law is ended. But Paul has a key qualifier in there too, doesn't he? The law is ended for righteousness and also for those who believe. So even for Paul, the law does continue, but not as a source of righteousness. See, now we're starting to get down to it. Righteousness for Paul and for Jesus comes from a different source. Doesn't come from the law itself. Okay, so which is it? Is the law ended for us or does it have to be fulfilled Well, of course, it's going to be both. You know that by now, right? It's never either or. It's always both and. 
But we're going to need to dig deeper. We're going to have to uh, see what uh, Jesus and Paul are really looking at here in terms of where they're, what they're talking about. Both Jesus and Paul are looking at what the Greeks called telos. I don't know if you ever heard that word before, telos. Um, it's the word that is translated here as the end. So telos literally means the, the end, the completion, the fulfillment. Or it can also mean a goal or an aim that you might have in a process. But it is the end result of it all. It's what completes a thing. It's what fulfills a thing, if you will. So really, Jesus and Paul are saying exactly the same thing here. Because for Jesus and Paul, the law is not the source of righteousness. If you want righteousness, you've got to look deeper. And this is a central concept, central concept. Mere rule following for both Jesus and Paul misses the point. Not going to get us where we want to go. Obedience to the law never equals kingdom. Obedience to the law will never get you to kingdom. You can't obey your way into kingdom. Have I emphasized that enough yet? Now, this idea of legalism, what is legalism really? Well, for our purposes, legalism is the belief that the law will save us, that by obeying and following the law, we can be saved. In other words, it's performance-based, right? If we do really well, if we keep the statutes and commandments, then God basically is obligated contractually to, to let us into heaven, keep us out of hell, accept us, love us. This idea of legalism is a fallacy to both Jesus and Paul. They're refuting it on its face. They're saying it doesn't work this way. You can't just behave and obey your way into this state of being that I am calling kingdom, the presence of God. This is why churches had such a problem with the Sermon on the Mount. It defies the building of any kind of institution. At its face, it's anarchy. If you really tried to apply the principles of the kingdom, uh, uh, the Sermon of the Mount, onto an institution or a group of people, it would fall apart in no time. This is deeply micro stuff. The church is looking at the Sermon on the Mount through a legal lens. Any institution has to have a legal lens or it can't survive, it can't sustain itself. We would hope that the church would have the dual vision and be able to teach individuals how to move past that legal lens, even as they keep the rules for the cohesion of the group. Oh, but it's so difficult to hold that kind of balance, right? The main points of kingdom, as we talked about them earlier, is that the kingdom is not legal. It's relational. The kingdom is not intellectual. It's experiential. And the kingdom is not there then, somewhere out there. But it's right here, it's right now, it's within, it's among. Everything Jesus is talking about with kingdom is turning it back to front, turning it on its head, trying to get us to understand that kingdom is not going to be approached we're not going to literally become kingdom in any conventional way that we move forward in life. We're going to have to move. We're going to have to move beyond all of that. We need to move beyond just a mere legal system all the way to the intent of the law. Not just following the law, but what is the law intending to do? What's its purpose? When, what is that? 
Well, the intent of the law, if you break it right down, first of all, is the preservation of life. The law is instituted on a group of people. And in the ancient times, in a subsistence culture, that preservation was tantamount. I mean, not tantamount, it was paramount. That preservation was what the law was about. All those crazy dietary codes and all the other things that just makes no sense to us that are in that Old Testament law, they had a reason. They were perpetuating the group. They were preserving the group, either the identity of the group or the physical subsistence of the group. They had a reason. They were there for a reason, to preserve the life of the group. And secondly, to promote God awareness in the people. You can take a look at the laws. Some of them are directed at the physical part of life. Others are directed at the spiritual part of life. So many rules that seem so onerous to us, but if you actually follow them, you couldn't take more than two or three steps without being reminded of your God. And that was the whole intent. I mean, even the way you tied the knots on the tassels of your talit, your prayer shawl, had a meaning to it. And that would remind you of the presence of your God. The way that you tied the, the phylacteries to your right forearm, to your head, would remind you of your... Everything would remind you of God. So to preserve physical life and to promote the awareness of God's presence in your life. Hey, we're right back to salt and light, aren't we? That's what salt and light's all about, preserving the physical life, promoting and bringing the light to the spiritual life. This is the purpose of the law. Now, the code of the law, as I was just trying to lay out here, is all pointing to this intent. If you're looking past just the rules themselves as an end in themselves, and you look at the intent, you can see what the purpose of the law really is. But if we're not careful, what always happens is, and always happens, is that it becomes an end in itself. The rules just become their own end. And then we're just following rules to be following rules. We're following rules to comply with society. We're following rules to be seen as a, a good citizen or whatever it happens to be. We're following rules so that we don't get punished, of course, right? But if we don't hold on to that balance, the law becomes an end in itself. And here's what Paul and Jesus are trying to tell us. They're trying to let us know that the law is only a pointer. It just points toward righteousness. It doesn't fulfill it in itself. The law can't do that. The law can't be righteous. Only a person can be righteous. I've often said, you know, there is no such thing as a Christian company. We like to talk about Christian companies. A company can't be Christian. A church really can't be Christian. The people within it can be and they can change the whole tenor and flavor of the community. But the institution itself is just an institution. The macro is just a macro. The law is a pointer to righteousness, but it doesn't fulfill it in itself. Now, Paul, a little bit further on, Romans 13 at verse 8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He's mirroring Jesus here, who said exactly the same thing, didn't he? He was asked what the greatest commandment was. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. Everything else is commentary. This is what Paul is talking about. 
Love is the telos. Love is the end, the completion, the fulfillment. Love is the goal and the aim. Love is the reason for all this apparatus in the first place because it's all pointing toward that. And of course, love is what fulfills the law, not the law itself. Love does. In the letter uh, to the Galatians, which is really an angry letter. Has anyone really read Galatians? This, this is Paul at his finest, red face with a vein sticking out of his neck. He is upset because he went into Galatia and he taught these people these very things. And then he leaves and he's getting all these reports that they have reverted right back to all the legalism, right back to all this stuff. And he just spanks them something fierce in this letter. And the letter starts off with, oh, you foolish Galatians, right? So what would that translate out to today's vernacular? <laughs> I don't think it would be foolish. It would be something a little stronger, right? It's an angry letter because he's fighting over this issue of the Judaizers, those who said that anybody, a Gentile who was going to follow Jesus, had to become a Jew first. They had to follow all the dietary laws, the purity codes. They had to be, the men had to be circumcised, and that was the issue. Circumcision became sort of the, the, uh, the example, the, the placeholder for all of the laws of Judaism that had to be followed before you could be accepted as a follower of Jesus. And this is Paul fighting this fight in almost every letter, trying to get the people to understand. It's not about just following these rules, especially if for a person who is not acculturated into them anyway. There's something deeper going on here. At Galatians 5.12, he is so angry, he says, you know, for those people who are still talking about circumcision, I hope the knife slips. Uh, your translation probably won't put it that way. But you, it will say something like, may they emasculate themselves, you know? May they mutilate themselves. It's the same thing. This is the whole idea. He is angry here. He's trying to bring the people back. Two verses later at, at Galatians 5.14, he says right here, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. What was Jesus constantly saying? The same thing. What did he say at the Last Supper? I'm going to give you a new commandment, and it's simply this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everyone will know that you're my follower by the way you love one another, not by anything else, not whether you're Jewish or Gentile, who your ancestors are, what your creed is. That's not important. If the creed and your ancestry and the laws all have led you and pointed you toward this love, then it's beautiful and it's necessary. But however you got here, get to the love. Get to the identification with each other. That is what it's all about. Paul is saying here to the Galatians that being Jewish and being lawful is not being in kingdom and it's certainly not being righteous. He's trying to make this distinction. And yet at the same time, the law is not irrelevant. Right? Jesus says it needs to be fulfilled. The law is still vitally important, but it's not legally important. And we need to make that distinction. The law is pointing. Right? The law is pointing toward the telos. Jesus is not going to abolish that. He's not going to end that. But he's going to be fulfilling that. He's going to be completing the intent. 
And that's what he's saying in verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Did not come to abolish, but to fulfill, because the law still has purpose. And then when he goes to verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he's using a great uh, image here that the people would have understood, and of course we not so much. In the King James, not one jot or tittle. You probably heard it that way before. Not one jot or tittle from the law will go unfulfilled until heaven and earth pass away. So the jot there, that's the smallest letter of the alphabet. Now in Hebrew, that is yud. It's a, it looks like an apostrophe to our eyes, just an apostrophe. It's a tiny little mark, right? And it would correspond to our letter I, iota in the Greek alphabet. And the tittle would be the kotz in, in Hebrew. It's called just a stroke. It actually literally means a thorn or a little horn. And it's, it's even a smaller stroke than the yud is. And it would differentiate certain letters from one another. Just like in our language, you got a C. How do you make it a G? You add a little stroke. That would be the tittle. That would be the quotes. That would be the little horn. You got an O. You're going to make it a Q. You add the little tittle. Same thing. They had the same kind of marks in the Hebrew alphabet that would differentiate certain letters. Those are the tiniest marks that could be made in their alphabet. Jesus is saying not a scrap, not just the tiniest little horn is going to be left undone. But this idea of heaven and earth passing away until heaven and earth pass away. The word there at the root is abar. And abar means pass away, but it means it in the sense of crossing a boundary or going beyond a limit. Not to cease to exist, but to move into a different space, right? Cross a boundary, exceed a limit. And then namasah, which is translated here as law or sometimes Torah in your translation, if you get down to the roots of it, it really means that which strengthens, that which relieves, that which guides, instructs. It's not law in the way we think of a legal instrument. It is the guidance and the instruction. It's a hand at the small of your back guiding you so that you don't stumble. It's that kind of idea. And the whole context of this saying in verse 18 is between heaven and earth, which is important for us to understand as well, that the Hebrews believed that all human life existed between heaven and earth, between Shemaiah and Arah. And the idea here is that Shemaiah, the skies, the domain of God, was all one. It was, it was all connected. You know, In modern parlance, it was a wave, right? All connected. But earth was a, pla- was a place of individual form and function. It was the particle. And we live between those two realities. And our goal and purpose as human beings was to merge the two, was to bring heaven to earth and earth to heaven. This is exactly what a bar means. A bar means to cross the boundaries. When heaven and earth cross boundaries, when heaven and earth merge together, then something changes. But until that point, not one yud or quotes of the law is going to be left undone. So if we were to paraphrase verse 18, and this is my own attempt, so bear with me, something like this, until heaven and earth, individuality and community cross boundaries and merge into oneness, even the smallest part 
of the instruction and guidance that strengthens us, that points, must remain in place until we fulfill its purpose and it is no longer needed. There was a scholar who called it the disappearing law, and I really like that. The law is needed for us living here in this life of individual uh, form and function where we see ourselves as separate from and in competition with everyone around us. The law is what can instruct us and guide us and form us and point us toward the oneness of Shemaiah, the oneness of heaven. But when that oneness has been reached, we don't need the law anymore. It's like a booster on a rocket. Once you're in orbit, you jettison the thing. It's just weighing you down. It's the same thing here with law. The law is needed for us living between heaven and earth until we reach that place of union, unity, connection. Jesus goes on in verse 19. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a very contextually specific saying because the Pharisees had divided the law into lesser and greater commandments, right? And their teaching was that if you broke one of the lesser commandments, it wasn't a really a big deal. You know, God wasn't too upset about that. You know, you, you had to wait until you broke one of the big ones, and then you had to go through the whole rigmarole. And so they had broken things down. For those of you who were raised Catholic, we had mortal and venial sins. Same idea here, right? You know, but they were breaking these things down. But notice the mindset here. Notice the attitude that this comes from and engenders in people that somehow there's a legal fig leaf. Somehow there's a workaround. You know, I can get away with this because this is just a little thing. I don't have to worry about that. Oh, but this one over here, I'm going to have to stay. See what the kind of games I start to play? Do you see the kind of mindset? Not only are we just trying to follow the law for its own sake, now we're trying to game the law so that we can get away with as much as we can. This is what, exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's saying this attitude, this very attitude that would create such a system violates the entire intent of the law from the get-go. It's pure legalism. It's just that legal fig leaf. And it leads directly to the main thematic statement at Matthew 5.20. Take a look. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that statement means very little to us. But I kid you not, it would be mind-blowing to the Jews of Jesus' time. Because the Pharisees had become absolute masters of the law. They created the law, pretty much. Yeah, there was the Decalogue, that was stated out, the Ten Commandments, but they created the entire system. And they were requiring the people to play on their court. They were requiring the people to play in their field adhering to their definition of the law, their understanding of righteousness. And that was the absolute key to their power. That's what it meant. The law and the oral tradition of the Pharisees is what gave them their power. This is Jesus attacking, laying the axe right to the root of the tree. And believe me, this is what got him killed. 
because this was the source of the Pharisees' power. He did the same thing to the Sadducees in the temple system. He was just not making any friends, but he was adamant about trying to free the people from these systems that were keeping them away from the state of being that they could have in kingdom. There's been several, over the 16 years that the effect has been around, we've had several key signature verses. I mean, you know the one right now, right? First John 4:19. you know, we love because he first loved us. So, so that's the one du jour and has been for several years now. But early on, it was Matthew 5, 20. This, this very verse, unless you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you can't enter the kingdom, which is not a very sexy verse. You know, it's not very warm and fuzzy, but it was so central to what we were trying to accomplish here. The Pharisees had gleaned 613 laws from the Torah, from the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. 613. 248 were positive actions that you needed to take, and 365 were prohibitions that you could not do. And if you were to go back and read the passages from which they extracted these laws, you would say, where is the law? You know, the, the, the Ten Commandments is clear in Exodus, but you read where they pull these things from. It is so subjective. It's so much interpretation. But they were pulling these rules out of the text and got to 613. Do they really exist as, as laws themselves? It's anybody's guess. But it's what they interpreted out over centuries and what the system that they had had come up with. So they got 613 of these written laws that cannot be broken without consequence. And then what they did in order to keep the people safe from breaking any of these rules, they created what they called hedges around them, fences around them. They were oral traditional rules and regulations that you could not break because they were getting you closer and closer to the law that you could not break. And then, of course, what happens is the oral tradition became as important to them and, and as binding as the actual written rules. And they were supposed to just have been guidelines, right? It's like the old joke. Why don't Baptists allow premarital sex? Because it leads to dancing. So dancing was supposed to be a hedge against the law of not having sex outside of marriage. But in the culture, it became just as important. What was the Footloose movie all about, right? You know, dancing was now like the number one enemy to the, the church life and to faith. This is what happens when the egg and the chicken and the cart and the horse get all mixed up. So dancing as a hedge becomes more important than the law that it protects. And this is what was happening in the, in the, in the Hebrews law as well. Jesus calls the Pharisees out for korban. Korban was the practice uh, of being able to dedicate a portion of your, your estate, your goods, your land, whatever it was that you owned, to God. You could just say, this land, this portion of my, of my funds, my, my wealth is now dedicated to God, and no one or nothing could touch it. Sounds pretty good on its face, right? You're dedicating something to God's use or the temple's use or whatever. Um, of course, they had all kinds of ways to get around that further forward in time. But what they were doing was they were setting aside their wealth in such a way so that they didn't have to support their family or their, their parents in their old age because that was expensive. And all that money just went right down the tubes. But if they declared it korban, then it couldn't be used for that purpose. 
But one of the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. And so here they were using an oral tradition, korban, to actually cut the head off of an absolute written command over here. And this is the kind of practice that was going on that was so heinous to Jesus, not only because it was breaking the laws that were really the important ones, honoring your father and mother, taking care of them in their old age, but because the attitude that it engendered completely eviscerated, eviscerated the law as the guide that it was supposed to be toward love. So how bad was it? It was pretty bad. I want to read you just a little bit about what these fences looked like. And, and I know I've read this in here before, so, um, but just listen again, just to, to the enormity of what's going on. In Exodus 35, 2 and 3, for six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day, a Sabbath, of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Rarely happened, but there's the, there's the punishment. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So now we also know that kindling of fire is included under servile work that must not be done on the Sabbath. And we know that death was the official punishment for violation, though it was rarely carried out even in ancient times. When it comes right down to it, what constitutes work? Can I take a walk without breaking a Sabbath? Can my children play? Can we prepare a meal without fire? Or what if the fire is still burning from the day before? Can I use it? Can I read? Carry a book from a shelf to a chair. Can I write? Can I deal with an emergency such as a broken bone or a hole in the roof? Can I care for my sick child? See, once the letter of the law has been separated from the spirit or the intent of the law, there is no end to the legal questions and permutations and interpretations that arise. The intent of the Sabbath law was simple. Provide a time of rest and refreshment, of rededication to God and his purpose. The application of the letter of the law became a nightmare as rabbis of the Pharisaic tradition labored to define just what servile work entailed. The rabbis eventually delineated 39 hedges around the Sabbath law. Now these are 39 categories of activities that would be prohibited on Shabbat, the Sabbath. These 39 categories... So the hedge or the fence is actually a category. Prohibited work that was either creative or exercised dominion over the environment and were loosely divided into four groups. Activities required to make bread, such as sewing, plowing, reaping, threshing, winnowing, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking. Activities required to make a garment, such as shearing, washing, beating, dyeing, spinning, weaving, two or more loops of threads, tying, untying, stitching, tearing. Activities required to make leather, trapping, slaughtering, flaying, tanning, scraping, cutting, marking, writing or erasing two or more letters. And activities required to build a house, building, demolishing, kindling, extinguishing fire, finishing, transporting objects more than four cubits, which is just a few feet. A lot of stuff there. But as restrictive as these 39 may be, they were only categories of activities, each containing many more activities within them. So within each category of work or malacha, there were direct derivative activities called toledot that carried nearly the same legal severity as the original malacha. Then there were also indirect derivative activities called shavut that carried much less severe punishments if violated. In this way, baking as melacha, 
carried within it the prohibitions against cooking, poaching, and roasting, all toledot under baking. And even if you weren't making bread, there wasn't much else you could do in the kitchen either on Shabbat, so meals needed to be prepared the day before. And since winnowing, as melacha referred to separating chaff from grain or making something edible, which was previously inedible, it was also unlawful to filter undrinkable water to make it drinkable or to pick small bones from fish. From one commandment to 39 melacha to dozens of toledot and dozens more shavut, restrictions exponentially grew. And keeping in mind that the Shabbat commandment was only one of 613 laws the rabbis recognized starts to bring the incredibly vast scope of the oral tradition into view. Can you imagine trying to parse through all that? This was the power the Pharisees had over the people because nobody understood it. It wasn't even written down. That's why they call it an oral tradition. It was passed on within the Pharisaic tradition to their young men that came in. They were the only ones who understood it. Jesus knows that keeping the law meant fulfilling its purpose, not just following all of these rules. And that's what he's trying to get across to his people. If we were to rewrite Matthew 5.20, to try to get us to understand what Jesus is really saying. I've made an attempt here. It's on your flyers, but here goes. Instead of, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom. Here's my attempt. When your deepest desire within becomes one and the same with God's deepest desire, when you value others more than yourself, when you see God in every breath, face, and moment, you will be fulfilling the purpose of the law and not just following rules. You will be in the kingdom of heaven by definition and not one instant before. I believe that's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. The law is not an absolute instrument. And it is not a test of our acceptability to God. It's not to be taken lightly. But it's also like that hand on the small of the back. It needs to be used to guide us. I used this analogy years ago. I know at least Scott liked it, but he's not here anymore. But you all know what a jello mold is? Have you ever used a jello mold? Okay, so it's shaped like whatever it's shaped like. Maybe it's a fish. Maybe it's uh, just a, a round, donutty thing. But you got this mold, and you pour the liquid jello into it. And if you let the jello set into it, then you can pull the mold away, and the jello looks like the mold, right? Pretty cool. I like to think of the law as a jello mold. If we will pour our lives into the law and let it set there long enough, Follow those rules, not for their own sake, and not in such a way that we're trying to game the system, curry favor, but because we understand that if we stay in that mold long enough, it will form us. And then when we have been formed, we can pull the mold away, and we will still look like the law. As Deuteronomy 6 says, the law will be written on our hearts now. We have become the law we did the law until the law was doing us, until we became the law. 
ancient Chinese philosopher Chuang Tzu has a great saying that I think is going to work here for us. He says, the purpose of a fish trap is to catch a fish. Once the fish is caught, the trap is forgotten. The purpose of a rabbit snare is to catch a rabbit. And once the rabbit is caught, the snare is forgotten. The purpose of words is to convey ideas. Once the ideas are conveyed, the words are forgotten. He says, show me someone who has forgotten words. There's someone that I want to talk to. Got to love those Chinese, right? How about this? The purpose of the law is to catch God's righteousness, to capture God's life and unity. But once we have captured that righteousness, that unity, that oneness, then the law can be forgotten. Show me someone who has forgotten law. That's someone I want to obey. I want to follow. That's the way it's supposed to be. And that's who Jesus is. He's someone who has forgotten law. That doesn't mean that he doesn't follow it anymore. He doesn't do the actual written law. He did to his dying day. He was an observant Jew. But he had forgotten it as a source of righteousness. He knew that righteousness came from a completely different source. And he lived that way. That's why I want to follow him. Because he's doing this completely differently. Mohandas Gandhi, great line. Justice is love. Let me say that again. Just The justice that love gives is surrender. The justice that love gives is surrender. The justice that law gives is punishment. The telos of the law, the purpose of the law is love. And the justice that love gives is surrender. It makes all the difference in the world. We can follow law either one of those two ways. But if we're going to live in kingdom, it's because we have learned that it's all about the love. And so ultimately, the law, like the Beatitudes that preceded this whole discussion in the Sermon on the Mount, is another picture of a kingdom person. The Beatitudes gave us these attributes of a kingdom person. Salt and light gave us the effect that this person had on another. But as we're redefining the law, we're realizing if someone is really living the law as Jesus is talking about, they are also a picture of someone who is living in kingdom because it is a picture of someone who is willing to surrender to the needs of the people around him or her. Surrender to the needs of the preservation of the community itself to surrender their own agenda, their own personal desires to the good of all. That's a person who is living law as Jesus lived it. Loving God, yes. Loving neighbor as self, yes. And constantly aware of the connection to both God and others. Someone who has come to understand that law is relational, not legal. And that ultimately love is the law. The only law that matters. But until heaven and earth pass away, until they cross boundaries and merge into one, these two aspects of our lives, the oneness and the individuality, merge into one. 
The law is needed to help guide us. But only until that happens in each one of our hearts, when we have merged into one, then we can forget the law because we have become the law. Our actions will fall within the law. The purpose of the law is to help make heaven and earth pass away, to merge in our hearts. And when we are one and when we are connected, there is no more law. It is fulfilled and we have become it. And what does that look like? You know, I think Jesus' most beautiful picture was the father of the prodigal. Really should have been called the prodigal father, the one who is wasteful and just no expense spared, just pouring out constantly is what prodigal means. But that father who didn't care that his son was breaking the law, only cared how much he loved for his son, gave his son what he asked for so that he could go out and take his hero's journey and make the full circuit, and when he came home, welcome him without condition, throwing a party with absolute ecstasy and joy. That is the picture of someone who has transcended law, has realized the relational nature of law, when dad acts like mom is when this has occurred in the heart of every person. When the law becomes mercy and not just justice, then we are starting to understand what Jesus is talking about. This looks like perfect love. And when we have experienced that, when we're starting to reflect it, then we can say, with Jesus, with just as much conviction that love is the law. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the law. We thank you for the guidance that it provides. We thank you for your presence, which is another form of guidance that you provide. We thank you for the consequences of our actions in life, which is another guidance that you provide. It's all here. Help us to understand that every one of these experiences in our lives is a pointer if we choose to look at it that way. Not just an obligation, not just a tragedy or anything in between, but as a pointer to where we need to go to come back to you, to come home to the garden, to become one again. Help us to see more and more of life that way. Help us to see our faith, our scripture, the law, our theological understanding of our relationship with you in this way, pointing us toward the love that is your ultimate nature and see how that changes things. Thank you, Father, for never giving up on us for your love and your constancy. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's all stand.